0: House of Tales by Oka.
1: Feeling secure in your home is number one. And then once you have that, for me, home is the ultimate personal expression of how you live, more so than how you dress. It's the most personal thing you have, what you put on the wall, what color. There's nothing more personal than that. And and to me, that's that's home.
0: That's Adam Lippis, the famed American fashion designer, who came to prominence as creative director at the luxury fashion house Oscar de la Renta, before eventually going on to set up his own luxury lifestyle label. In his homes, much like in his fashion collections, the style is one of unhurried elegance, understated design, ease, Confidence, A place to indulge in his inspiration and life's passion for art, antiques, textiles, gardens and travel, and quality above all else. For the past few years, he and his partner have lived daily life in a 19th century high-style apartment in Brooklyn Heights, New York. And we spoke to him during a moment of transition. Right now, he's in a hotel in Midtown Manhattan, and that's his temporary home while he's on the lookout for his next project. But wherever he is called home over the years, each is a place to celebrate living. This is the House of Tales podcast presented by Oka. Mm -hmm. Sit back, relax and feel elegantly at home with our guest, Adam Lippis. Adam, it's great to meet you, and thank you for inviting us to join you in conversation from across the pond in New York.
1: I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Your fashion designs have been described as imparting a livable elegance, and I wondered how much you carry that into your home, that philosophy, when you're creating homes. I know you've been in many homes, but is that something that rings through all of them?
1: You know, to me, fashion and interior design really go hand in hand. And in my process in interiors, it is really the same as, as fashion. In, in fact, you'll see many times I'll pull patterns from an interior into my collection for fashion. Clothing is about how you live, and so are interiors. So for me to separate them is, is impossible. I love designing new spaces, and sometimes people in my my business, my fashion business, will say, oh, can you not get distracted by that right now? And for me, it's not distracting. It's inspiring to bring it back into the collection. So, you know, they just sort of ebb and flow between the two. There's no break.
0: And is it always on the fabric side of things or are there other elements? Is it that you're working in a particular palette one season and that starts to kind of seep into the home?
1: It's uh, it's pattern. It's color. It's layering. I'm very much a a layering type of designer, uh, both for interiors and for the collection. It's embroideries. I can pick up an embroidery or a fringe off of a curtain I saw and bring it into the collection. It really is sort of whatever sort of sparks my imagination at the time.
0: Mm, all those details. I believe you've got a fondness for the French romanticist decorator, Madeleine Castaigne. Correct. Who is very well known for taking these grand spaces and making them really livable. And I know that your recent home in Brooklyn Heights had a really grand dining room, yet it still felt cozy. So what for you are those kind of secrets to doing that? And how do you do that? What are the tricks if you've got a large space, but you want to have that cozy human feel?
1: For me, it is really about the mix that goes into that room and looking at, first of all, its scale. And if it is grand in scale, which Brooklyn is, um, how to bring that scale in. So I had a very grand dining room, but I had a table for four. Um, Yes, if I had a big party, it could be expanded, but day to day it was four. Color is very important. That room was in my favorite pink. The entire apartment was pink in fact, but this room I dyed silk uh, in the same pink and the whole room was in silk. And the whole room was also lit by candles. Um, And I know my neighbors thought I was insane because I'm in New York, in Brooklyn, so they could see us from the next building and I'd have dinner parties and the entire thing lit by candles. They probably thought, who is this weirdo? (laughs) Uh, But it wound up making it very, very warm. And, you know, there's something else I think that can make grand spaces more livable is because it was all lit by candle. And I always like to put some sort of quirk into the space so people can laugh at it a little bit. Mm. Um, if you can add some humor into your space, so don't take it too seriously. Add some fun. And being all lit by candles, people loved it, but obviously it's a little odd. And so, you know, people laughed at it. And I think that made it a little more fun than otherwise it would have been.
0: I don't think you can beat candlelight. It's just the the best light, isn't it, for, for flattering people and, and for just living light essentially it's just magical and this is interesting that I think do you use sort of silk fabric a lot on walls because I always love that you want to kind of reach out and touch walls when they've got fabric on and it helps so much with acoustics which helps the cozy feel right
1: half of the rooms in a house will have fabric walls all the bedrooms will because of just what you said, the acoustics and the coziness. And I do silk. I do uh, prints. I've done jacquards on rooms. I've done a cashmere room. I've done an ivory cashmere room, oh, um, wow. which was extraordinary. And when people walk into a room with fabric, the first thing they do do, you're right, is they touch it. And it brings them into sort of this space in a really emotional way. Plus, I'm a fashion designer. That starts with fabric. So, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. The other thing that came through to me when I was looking at images of your home and the way you've used material, as you say, you use them in half the rooms in a house. There's lots of elements about that that to me feel very uh, global. But I think that that's quite interesting. And you've collected, you've obviously used to travel a lot before lockdown. You've collected so many pieces uh, from all over the world, like China, Sweden, Morocco. And I wondered... How do you choose what to bring back or what elements speak to you when you're traveling?
1: I am an avid collector. I inherited that from my father. And I am an avid collector of furniture, uh, which is such a pain. <laughs> um, and I buy what speaks to me. Um, and what speaks to me in general is, number one is the quality. Um, how, how is it made? How was it made? And number two, is there something a bit off about it? Is there something a bit quirky, a bit weird? I'm still in that beauty, is it a convertible desk from the 18th century, which this incredible weird mechanism? And is the inlay something very strange? You normally wouldn't see this sort of chinoiserie inlay because of these animals that are here. I just bought a fireplace mantle for a fireplace I don't have, and it's it's French, turn of the century, in the Japanese taste, but it has dancing frogs inlaid, which are just so strange, you know? And I just love that. Like, who came up with this and why? So I collect these things, and I I then will build rooms around them at some point, hopefully. Um,
0: Ah, that's interesting. So you are the believer in a kind of statement piece that you end up building something around as well.
1: Correct. Correct. And then I dream about it and move forward. It's about making sure when you're for me when you're collecting and thinking about how these pieces work in your room that there's never too much of one thing. And actually it's it's a very American thing to theme a room. This is my French room. This is my English room. And that's not how I live or what I like to do. I like to mix it up. As you said, this is from Morocco, the chandelier. This is, you know, this is 18th century English. Then this is this weird art deco thing. Then this is brand new, Uh, Mm. you know, just mix it up.
0: And it sounds like you were very lucky to inherit because your father collected a lot of uh, Biedermeier pieces, which I think you've still got in a lot of your homes.
1: Uh, He is an avid collector still, although now at 83, he's an avid collector of very contemporary art, which is one category I don't always understand. When I was younger, what he collected were, you know, just beautiful classical pieces. And with my mother, um, who really understood the mix, I think it's where I learned it from, put them together in just a fun, unique way that I have taken forward.
0: So you were kind of educated as you grew up in a lot of this, probably without even realizing.
1: I, I was educated as I grew up, and then I spent my my formative adult years working for Oscar de la Renta, who took me to grad school on that education, not only through how he designed interiors uh, and how his wife designed interiors, but I was exposed to houses all over the world that, uh, as a boy from... Buffalo, New York, which is a small town in New York State, smallish town, I would never have been exposed to. So I had this foundation, certainly, but I went to grad school there at Oscar.
0: How did he view the home and what do you think you took from that? I mean, I know he sort of loves the garden and I don't know if that's something that's coming to your work and your homes.
1: A garden, I also learned from him as well and I am an avid gardener. I work on the garden much as I work on a home on, on my rooms because I change them all the time. Uh, garden is never done. And I'm a firm believer that a room is never done. I think it's done. And six months later, I decide it's not. And it's not that I'm changing its style necessarily. It's that I'm changing a color or I'm taking out a piece of furniture. I just did this this past weekend in, the, in, my, in my country, in the living room. I walked into the living room and I'm like, I just felt like I couldn't breathe. And I got rid of half the furniture. And then I'm like, "Ah, I feel so much better. And uh, it's just weird. But, you know, when I put all that furniture in, I thought it was the most perfect thing I'd ever done. So I don't know. I I get distracted. But Oscar, uh, his wife came from a very fancy family and brought a lot of incredible pieces with her into the marriage. Oscar was also an avid collector. And uh, his homes were extraordinary and livable. Even with all these, these extraordinary pieces, they were very comfortable. Think slipcovers, and in, in a very English way, they lived, grand English way. If
0: you picked one lesson that you perhaps learned working with him, would there be one thing in, that would stick in your mind that you could remember?
1: It's funny, I've been asked what he taught me in the fashion world about a million times, never what he taught me in the home world. But when I think about it now, his job as a fashion designer was very simple was to make a woman smile. You know, I'm not going to be the coolest. I'm not going to be the sexiest designer. I'm not going to be, our job is just to make the woman happy when she puts on these clothes. And I think that is very much also uh, his thought in at least his homes. They were just for them to bring them joy. Things they collected, the colors on the wall. It was just to make them happy. And beauty, you know, in some ways, this idea of beauty, both in fashion and in home, has become a bad word. Pretty is a bad word. It needs to be cool. It needs to be uber modern. You need to make a statement. You need, but you know, there's nothing wrong with pretty and there's nothing wrong with beautiful. And I'm not saying there is one ideal beauty, there isn't, but whatever your idea of beauty is, there's nothing wrong with that. I tell people when they ask for advice on designing a room, I say, whatever makes you happy and take chances because you can always take it out. Yeah. (laughs) So paint that wall pink. If you don't like it, paint it yellow. Who cares? But people, very much the same as when a woman is getting dressed, they're so nervous they're going to make a mistake. And mistakes are part of the process and part of the learning process. And they're so important.
0: Adam's most recent home, overlooking the East River, was an apartment situated in a mid-19th century building in Brooklyn Heights. Though decorated throughout with rich fabrics and high-style antiques that Adam had collected on his travels around the world, it was one room particularly that proved a focal point for guests, and a talking point for interiors journalists. A tented space that the couple brilliantly nicknamed the Opium Den. This is the perfect time to talk about your opium den because I think that's made me smile and made me happy, talking about beauty and joy and and homes making you happy or a home being interesting. It's tented with a linen cotton. I know you've moved on right now and you're creating another home. Maybe you'll create another opium den. But can you talk about that room to us? Because I'm sure all your guests end up in that room.
1: It was a little side room next to our bedroom. It was quite narrow it was about, about eight feet wide by 14 feet, so a little bit of a strange shape. And when I got that home, I knew I wanted to do something very dramatic in there. So Opium Den was born. It had a mix of a crazy Moroccan chandelier that I found in Tangier. It had a, a neoclassical bust. It had uh, mid-century Swedish side tables. It had then walls and a tent and the sofas as well, all in the same black ground fabric. And you'd think, well, it's a small room. You have to go light. You can't go dark. And why would you put all this pattern in a small room? But it, it worked for me. Um, it's funny, when that photo of that room appeared in Architectural Digest, they, they posted it. And it had two of my dogs on the sofas and the room and the comments were just killer. One comment was so funny. They said, I bet those dogs are about to throw up. <laughs> I mean, you know, that room, as you just said, would be filled with people at the end of the night. And it made them feel they were, they were sort of in a time gone by in this cocoon, like what sort of where are we? Yeah. Um, where are we right now? We're not in New York. We're not in Brooklyn. You know, where are we? And uh, gosh... Uh, I loved, I loved that room.
0: So it's like a total escape.
1: When I did that room, what I learned is if you have this space, a small, uber cozy room will always work for something. Like just give it this coziness, this cocoonness, so you're you're transported from the dining room where you ate into this another area, and it 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 makes people just want to sit close and talk, and and it gives this love to the space. So I will always have that in in a space that I do, and and I would suggest it if you have the room.
0: So when you're designing your home, are you thinking? People will be coming here. Is that in your head? Or is it like, this is an escape for myself and my partner, my dogs? What's your thinking? Does it differ? Maybe your country home is more your escape and your town is your entertaining pad.
1: I definitely design for guests. I design with the idea that people are going to come over and enjoy the space. You know, I fight with my partner about it sometimes because he's like, I want to do a workout room here. I'm like, but this is a guest room. He's like, but we don't (laughs) have any guests. I'm like, but we will. Uh, You know, it's very, very, uh, I design with people living and enjoying the space. My living rooms are always, there's a lot of interesting seatings because for the most part, when I give a dinner party, you don't sit at the table. I like people to sit everywhere, including all the bedrooms. I think there's nothing more fun than people sitting on a bed and eating with their friend, especially in the master bedroom. It's sort of like a forbidden place. It's funny because, you know, when what I learned from Oscar was that you never went into the master bedroom and you never, the you, master bedroom was not supposed to be photographed, but I like people to be everywhere. I think that makes it sexy. So the seating and the different kinds of seating in these rooms, um, I always have guests in mind of, of, especially... For dinners, like where will they sit to eat and how many can I sit in this place to eat? It's always a thought process.
0: So let's rewind a little bit because I know you've been spending time in the country home, which is a converted 18th century barn, I believe, which used to be like a woodcut printing press.
1: Yeah. You would think you were in England. In fact, its name is Greywald. Um, I didn't name it. That's what it, it was named. And it's down a very long driveway, sits on top of a hill, goes down into the valley. It's a Tudor house that was a converted barn. Actually, it's the oldest barn in the county from 1740, which I know for you guys is brand new, but for us in America is very, very old. And it was bought in the late 1800s by a, a man who did wood, woodcut prints, and he converted the barn into a woodcutting studio, a printing studio for himself and uh, built on the house, um, all from trees on the property. It's not a massive house, but it's very grand. It's very grand without being big. It has a very grand f- feeling to it. And I didn't want to do a country house, you know, that, that theme. So I wanted to really focus on the mix of and some shiny furniture because it doesn't really work in there. Uh, you know, great needlepoint rugs, um, but all very light and crisp and keep it very, very light and airy and and crisp. I kept having this crisp idea. It's all windows. It's all these very, very large, large windows looking out into the gardens and and, and the view. And I, I really want to focus on that. There are no drapes anywhere in the house, um, no window coverings, because I really want to focus outside, even though up there, you know, you only have four months of summer and the rest is, is 10 feet of snow. Uh, but it really is just this very, very light, airy, uh, crisp house, which which is weird for a you know 1900s converted barn. You think, oh my god, dark and overbearing, but it's 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 not. It's really magical space. And then I built a guest house about 200. Meters away, that I envisioned as sort of the perfect New York apartment with a one-bedroom apartment, and it's all white. It's all white, and it's our reading room, so it's it's like a library filled with thousands of books and places to sit and desks to write a letter, and and then a bedroom and 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 stuff. But that is really a, our our escape place, and people at parties will move there after dinner and drink and smoke and whatever they want to do.
0: I'm wondering how much the, the fact that that's all white. Um, I know you have Labradoodles. Did you pick them
1: because they don't shed? Well, I grew up with standard poodles. So uh, that was the first reason why I picked them. Uh, I saw a Labradoodle on the street about 20 years ago and they were brand new in America. No one had seen them. And I thought, oh my God, standard poodles aren't that bad. And the woman's like, no, this is a Labradoodle. And I wound up ordering from her her breeder. Um, And I do keep them in mind. And I keep the fact that it's a country house in mind because nothing can be too precious you can sit anywhere dogs can go anywhere there's nothing worse than a place where you can't sit or oh my god that rug got stained and you know this is very run around and free
0: when you step inside and close the door adam believes that we should have an appreciation for the place we call home embracing its role in keeping our lives colorful layered satisfying and full of joy no matter how grand or modest that space may be. I like that you touched a little bit earlier about your friends comparing your sort of setup to living like a a grandmother. And I just wondered if you feel like, certainly your Brooklyn home had that really nice historical feel to it, whether you think we've lost some of the art of living of the past.
1: I think it's probably no different from any era. Um, I have friends who live, regardless of the financial abilities, in incredible spaces. It can be a studio apartment, but boy, do they have style. And then I'm looking across at a building right now in New York City. looking You can look right into these apartments and thinking, my God, (laughs) have these people looked around? Uh, And maybe they just don't care. Either they don't know or they don't care, but that's probably always true. You know, part of what drives me is how I live and the beauty that I surround myself and the beauty that I see, that is important to me and that's not important to everyone. And that's okay. Um, it's just n- n- not how I live, you know, But you and you tend, to, you tend to find people, at least I have found people, who have that same idea as me. So most of my friends have incredible places they live in. Again, some very small, but still incredible.
0: I do think there's a difference between some people have an attitude that really their home is their own, escape. And I think some people just want to host people in their home. And I, I understand the latter more. And I think that um, you evidently do. I mean, when it comes to entertaining, are you kind of a dinner party every week? Or are you a very impromptu? Or is it sort of thick card invites to people? Or how does it work for you, the entertaining?
1: it's It would be about a dinner party a month, because they would tend to be big, uh 40 people or so. Um, I I think New York City is interesting with dinner parties. When I've when I've been to Europe, I lived in Paris for a year and spent a lot of time in London. You get invited to people's homes. New Yorkers often don't invite you to the home. I've known people for 20 years and I've never seen their home. New Yorkers, I think, tend to go out more. I happen to love having people in and love entertaining. And I like not to go out. So it is part of what I do inviting people to these parties. And I love different friends to meet and different people to meet and people are in town. And I mean, what is more luxurious to me with a great friend in town than inviting them to your home, inviting friends you think they will like to your home and having dinner? To me, that is exponentially more important than having a table for eight at a restaurant. Absolutely. It's also the effort, you know, beauty takes effort, living well, I believe takes effort and it's part of effort. Uh, But you know, as we say in in our design studio, beauty isn't easy, and so that's that's okay. Part of that effort is becomes the reward as well.
0: I know you said that people eat almost informally, but do you have quite a lot of fun dressing the the tablescaping, if you like?
1: Oh yeah, flowers and the the tablescape where the food is put out is is really important. It's for me, it's never overdone. I think the the flowers really speak because we have incredible flower markets here and I do a lot of flowers, just one kind and different colors all throughout the apartment, not sort of big, big arrangements. And I like to keep the table looking crisp, but not too much silver. Right. You know, keep it easy and approachable and candles everywhere, of course, and people can smoke in my apartment if they want. I just don't care. You know, I just don't care
0: it sounds fab. I'd love to come one day.
1: <laughs> You're invited.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you talked a little bit before about your mother being an interior decorator and having a, a philosophy of mixing things up. She mixed different eras in her work, but what other lasting influence do you think your your mother had on your style or home?
1: It was a place for comfort. We had a ton of dogs. You could sit anywhere. It was Fancy is a word I don't like, but it was it was elegant and dressed up. But also, you could go anywhere. My father collected all of these uh, sort of uh, Art Deco Cartier compacts; it, those beautiful compacts with enamel and gold and little jewels in them. And you know, they would just be uh, twenty of them out on a table. You know, there was nothing that you couldn't touch or look at or see, and it did create this sense of, of ease. Even when I worked at Oscar, of course, my mother had access to that wardrobe, but my mother you know, wore jeans and a t-shirt every day and looked like a million bucks. It was a sense of elegance that is not driven by money, mm-hmm. um, which I think today is becoming a lost art. That has become much harder. We somehow equate, oh, you're rich, so you're elegant, and that's just not true. I would say you can't buy taste. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. No way. And either you have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, I just wish you'd ask somebody.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of your own home, is there something that you couldn't live without? Because I know you're in between at the moment, you're about to probably start a new project. Uh, Is there something you know you'll be taking with you for sure into the new home?
1: Uh, When I left Brooklyn, I had a, a big auction. There are pieces that I'm not happy that I will part with. Of course, there are some pieces that you do buy because you need something for that space. But everything else I have, whether it's in the country house or in storage, these are pieces for a lifetime, pieces to pass on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's, it's an interesting thing in America that I know so many European friends who live in their grandparents' homes. You never see that here. And I think that's too bad. Uh, you know, I have pieces from my grandparents and I want to pass them on. So they're from your, your great grandparents. You know, I really want to start that generational style. And so there are so many pieces that are meaningful. The most meaningful are those that have come from uh, my family. And these are not pieces I might have bought at an auction or a store, but they hold the, the most meaning.
0: And if I had to make you pick one?
1: There is a clock that came from my father's family. And when my mother died, uh, she left it to me, and that would be one. It is French, provincial, painted, probably 1840. It's unnaturally tall, but it doesn't go with anything else I have, and it it works really well. Um, It always works really well. It's funny because it's one of the pieces that people often say, oh, I love that clock.
0: And when you have all these different pieces, because you really do... I know you had a prayer bench from an English monastery. Uh, you've already talked about some of the historical pieces you've, you've had. What's the trick to still make rooms feel one room and cohesive? Is it all in the fabric and pattern mix and the palette? How do you make a room hang together in that eclectic way still?
1: For me, the room begins with, with the walls, that's first, and then the floor. Um, and if those work together as a cocoon, You can do whatever you want in the room, I think. I mean, I I just don't think it matters. I just don't think, I guess, um, wow, those things really don't work together, but maybe that would make it really fun. So who cares? You know, I think if you paint your walls three different colors and then you have a different rug, you're going to have a problem. (laughs) But as long as the cocoon, the shell uh, works for your space, you can really play inside of it. In my rooms, I'll have 18th century English, then a piece of. Biedermeyer, then French wicker from the 30s, then a Swedish lamp, then a piece of oka pottery, I, you know, and it just sort of, it just all comes together. I mean, and I like it, which is the most important. I know you love rugs, particularly. Is it a particular era or
0: is it Persian rugs or can that really vary as well?
1: needlepoint rugs that are crisp and it's nearly an impossible thing to find because many of them are dark or they're sort of muddy or they look sort of very vintage but there are some very crisp where the colors are still bright and fresh and I mean people worked on these and put them together and many times it was different homes were working on them and then putting them together and I love the story behind them and it's really challenging to find and I also though I don't have any I love Chinese Art Deco rugs, because some of the color stories in them are just miraculous. Um, And I'm thinking for my next modern apartment, I will have a Chinese Art Deco rug. I think one of your rugs, the 1940s Portuguese rug, it was your inspiration for the Oka range. Am I right? It did. It did. We actually were inspired by that rug for our set of plates, which came out incredibly. I use them every day. But that was the original inspiration for it. And I've also been inspired by that rug for a pattern for our collection of clothing. So it really does work back and forth.
0: Mm. And when you do that, is it a case of lifting the pattern and kind of simplifying it or changing the scale or changing the color? How do you, when you say inspires, I think it's always interesting picking that apart and seeing what you did with it to be, to land with a
1: dining ware print or Well, for both Oka and for my own collection, what what we did was we recreated it by hand painting it. So we looked at the color scheme off of it. We looked at some of the flora and the birds and, and, and what was happening. And then it's hand painted. I mean, the Oka plates were hand painted multiple, multiple times just to get to the beauty that they are. So you really are Inspired, You're not copying it. You're just picking up. It it was, number one, the colour, and number two, what was in it, what was in that rug and how it worked.
0: He may have once said that he didn't understand modern stuff. It's just ugly were his exact words. But Adam's plan for his next living space offers a lesson in how sometimes, in your home, as in life, opening the door to fresh inspiration and making friends with new ideas can be an important part of feeling at home. And for the next space, I don't know how far off you are. I don't know if you found your modern apartment or if you're still looking around real estate agents. What's percolating? Have you got some ideas? Have you got a mental mood board for that for that home?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of doing a modern home, modern in in what I consider modern, that will still be... Comfortable, which I think is a big challenge. I've never done an Uber modern home, but I do not want too much furniture, too many pieces, which is unlike how I, n- I normally decorate. I want it to be very, very crisp, very pale colors, and sort of low slung is this word I have in what I want it to be. And it's really challenging for me because it's not what I'm attracted to and not what I look at. But I, I like that challenge. You know, I'm also very challenged on it because I think spaces like that need very good art, and we all know what the modern art market is like. So that's something that I can't touch. So I'm trying to think about how to how to. I can't put a big Rothko in the center of this room. So you know, how can I really bring it together and make a statement? Because also, I don't do boring, (laughs) Mm. Um, but I'm excited to try this. I'm excited to try it. I'm nervous and I'm not there yet, but I'm thinking.
0: Do you anticipate many debates with your partner or are you generally just
1: left to your own devices with Holmes? He wants to be involved in the home process too, but um, I, when he gives me advice and I, I just say, which is so horrible, I say, and you've been published where? <laughs> <laughs> which really annoys him and I understand why because it's a horrible thing to say, but I can't help it. Um, you know, he's incredible at some things. He has his own business, but I live and breathe this. So I do listen to him and I do have questions, but what I'll do is I'll present two things. Which one do you like? And then I'll take the one that he likes, Um, (laughs) but they both are good by me. That's a very wise. (laughs) I hope he doesn't listen to this.
0: (laughs) I look forward to seeing what you do with your modern experiment. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. I enjoyed this.
0: That's it for this episode three of the House of Tales podcast by Oka. In episode four, we return to the UK to explore tales of entertaining. I sit down with stylist, writer and creator of the popular blog Hill House Vintage, Paula Sutton as she shares her tales of swapping London for life in the idyllic Norfolk countryside, bringing joy to her thousands of online followers as well as house guests with her outdoor summer entertaining, which happens under the garden chandelier. Be sure to subscribe to the Ochre House of Tales podcast wherever you listen. This episode was hosted by me, Bethan Ryder, and featured Adam Lippis. Recording, production and audio post was by Talori, with executive producers Mike Brachinsky and Mark Baker. Music direction was by Andy Guthrie.